0: Welcome to Leave It On Red, the podcast that tells you which books you can just leave on Red, like those pesky text messages that you get from your friends, or which ones you should pick up and actually read. I'm taking this principle and applying it to all types of books, whether it's contemporary or a classic, a graphic novel, a poetry collection, a novel. I'll be telling you, in my opinion, what's worth reading out there. Today, I'll be talking about Schubeck Lubeck. A graphic novel by Dina Mohammed. Before I start talking about the graphic novel I would first like to just say that there will be spoilers in this podcast because there's a lot going on and I find that it's hard to really get to the essence of the text without going through a very full summary. I will leave one thing as a surprise to you at the end but it's not very important for the overall story. So if you already know that this might be something that interests you, or you've looked a little bit online about what this text is about. I highly encourage you to pick it up before listening to this podcast. If you're not sure at all, go through this podcast, listen to the summary, and I still think that it's worth a read afterwards because there are so many details that I will not be able to touch on throughout just one simple summary of the text. Secondly, I'd like to just take a moment to really thank my friend who recommended this text to me. I can't wait to share it with all of you, and I'm so happy that they shared it with me because they were absolutely right. This text is right up my alley for so many different reasons. Shubek, lubek are the Arabic words for your wish is my command, or the expression that a jinn would say when they are released from their container. This text is set in Cairo, Egypt, and it's in a world where wishes are real. So for about maybe a quarter or a fifth of the text, you get these little documents that are explaining the different politics surrounding wishes. And then the other four-fifths to three-fourths, you're getting simply the story of three different characters who interact with these wishes. Technically four. There are four characters, but there are only three parts of the text because the last part interacts with two people who are actually present throughout the entire narrative but the last part focuses on both of them. So I'll get into that more in a second. Wishes are broken down into different classes. So there's third-class wishes, second-class wishes, and first-class wishes. De Lesseps, the third-class wishes, are actually named after Ferdinand de Lesseps. As you'll see, as I explain through the text a bit more, this text is very critical about the world and society and classes in particular. Naming this after the Comte de Lesseps, Ferdinand de Lesseps, the idea is to punch a little bit at what's going on. So de Lesseps, for those who do not know, is the French diplomat that developed the Suez Canal, joining the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, which, of course, the idea was to reduce sailing time between Europe and East Asia. Of course, this is also an area of conflict for Egypt, we have a French outside influence directing the project, Egypt being under British occupation and French occupation throughout their history. And interestingly enough, I think this is where the kind of jab comes in. De Lesseps tried to complete the Panama Canal after he completed the Suez Canal. In the Panama Canal, there were epidemics of malaria, yellow fever, and the project was never completed. So he actually ended up dying before the project would be completed. The United States bought the project and then completed it about 20 years after his death. So I believe that the delesips are the kind of idea of having almost like the eyes bigger than your stomach kind of concept where you want more and you go for it and then you've the repercussions afterwards not necessarily that you eat too much food. In any case, wishes are broken down based on their dragon power and so this is a unit that's created in the graphic novel. So the graphic novel is an interesting mix of creating and establishing this new world where wishes exist and then the actual telling of real life stories with people who of course engage in these wishes. In these documents that explain about the wishes. There's documents that are like political documents, essentially like treaties. The the UN has actually referenced quite a few times about how they have decided to delegate wishes and view wishes, which is really interesting. They explain that wishes are based on these classes because of their dragon power. and What that means is that the wish is more powerful or not. So de Lesseps, for example, they're going to have less power and the first class wishes are going to be things that will give you everything that you could possibly want. And the idea is that the dragon power is accumulated as they age. So a third class wish can eventually become a first class wish, and etc. At the same time, there's ways that wishes can be downgraded. Wishes are actually owned by the person who buys them, or is given the wish, you have to sign over a paper. And if somebody opens, let's say, a first class wish that is not their own, they've stolen it, or they haven't done the proper exchange of ownership, then that wish will be automatically downgraded to a second class wish. So there are some interesting dynamics to wishes. And this is why there's also the society, and not just Egyptian society, global society, that has built up rules and regulations for wishes. The Lesseps, third-class wishes, for example, are actually completely outlawed, especially in Egypt. Certain countries, they apparently have different rules, but in Egypt, they're completely outlawed because so many people have been getting hurt from them. It's actually a moment, so the text plays a little bit with the, the timeline in general. And there's a moment where we see somebody's story in the past, and she's watching her future husband asking for a BMW. That's the only thing he wants. He's using a third-class wish to ask for a BMW. And of course, as he asked, the first time he asked, he just says, I want a car. And he gets a little Hot Wheels car. And then he finally learns he needs to be as specific as possible. So then he eventually asked for the exact model, make, color, and everything that he wants for this BMW. He even says that he wants it to be drivable. And then the wish puts it on top of a statue, and it's impaled by a a spike. Um, Technically, it still works, right? So he didn't ask for it to be drivable on the road. He just wanted it to work. So there's all these little clauses that can happen, especially with third-class wishes, because you have to be extremely explicit. And a lot of people were getting hurt by third-class wishes, so that's why they were eventually outlawed in Egypt. There are other regulations, and there's the political dynamic as well, For example, there is the ability to wish in Scandinavian countries to fly, which is something not permitted in Egypt. The idea there is this kind of critique that Egyptians are held back from certain things, whereas a European country like Norway or Sweden or Finland, they're able to ask for things that Egyptians can't. So there's this interesting class, social and political dynamic to wishes. Let's move into the actual stories that are being told here. So we're accepting the fact that we're in this world, wishes exist where different classes of wishes exist and where there is a system of buildup around these wishes that allow certain countries to do the different things with wishes, certain countries to have access to different wishes, etc. As I mentioned with all of these political dynamics, it gets very much into colonialism and neo-colonialism and classism. So we'll hear more about that as we go throughout these stories. Let's start off with Aziza. Just to preface this a little bit, the main thread pulling all of this story together is actually Shokri. He is a street vendor selling candy, snacks, and things like that. But in addition to that, he also has three first-class wishes that he was given from his father. And we'll hear in just a moment about Shokri's story a little bit more, so you'll find out why his father was giving these wishes, etc. But he is the thread pulling it together. So all of the people, Aziza and Noor, they get the wishes from Shokri. And somebody talking to Shokri, he calls her Haga throughout the first part. Um, Haga is a title given to people who have done pilgrimage to Mecca. And so he calls this lady who keeps coming to his Kiosk Haga, and we found out later on that her name is Shao There are also some religious dynamics that come into play, so we'll hear about that in just a moment as well. In any case, let's start out with Aziza. So Aziza is somebody I referenced a little bit, so her story goes back in time, and we see her watching her future husband ask for wishes and the like. Once the story finally gets into the point of establishing what wishes are, giving us the idea about what's going on, We see Shokri who's having some troubles with his kiosk and he wants to make money. And he has these three wishes and wishes are very expensive and these are first-class wishes imported from Italy, supposedly. You really see the draw, this exoticism with wishes. They're in a wine bottle as well, so it almost looks like he's selling a fine bottle of Italian wine in his kiosk, but really it's a wish. At the same time that we're seeing him struggling with his kiosk, He then decides that he's going to have to sell these wishes to make money. We're also seeing wishes in the background. So somebody wishes for a a better donkey, and in fact, they use a not first class wish. And what they allow the donkey to have actually is just the ability to talk and to think like a human. So we see this donkey coming to life in the background while Shokri is trying to think of what to do to sell these wishes. And once again, wishes at this point are contentious, because in society, you have to be rich to have a first-class wish, so these cost a lot of money. You not only have to be rich to have a first-class wish, but if you are a poor person and you work your way up to getting a first-class wish, it's often taken away from you by the government. We'll see that in just a moment as we listen to Aziz's story. So once the Haggah, Shaokia, and Shokri are discussing, Shaokia actually gives... Shokri a a better advertisement. Shokri just has a handwritten sign on his kiosk, and she has her grandson create a better advertisement for his wishes, hoping that it'll help him sell. Like I said, she comes to his kiosk every day, so they know each other fairly well, even though they have that kind of social distance still, not knowing details about each other's lives. Aziza is living with her husband, and he still is only ever talking about the BMW. They don't have a very rich life. He's imagining the car, but their apartment is trash, and they struggle to make ends meet for the most part. Once he passes, for example, and I'll explain how that happens, she's completely left without any savings, without any ability to sustain herself, so then she has to go to work. Maybe not necessarily extremely poor, but without his income and they don't have any savings left as Aziza is forced to go into the workforce. Before, it seems like she was relegated to the household, but that is not very clear because we only see him alive for a few moments. He is eventually on the phone with Aziza. They're in a fight and he's trying to apologize And as he steps out into the street, talking to Aziza, he's hit by a car and he passes away. Once again, so Aziza goes into mourning and then she goes into the workforce trying to make ends meet. And of course, she's very poor. We then get the backstory of how she met Abdo, her husband, as a teenager. And we find out that Aziza was always depressed and always in her own space away from others. So it's not very clear if it's her mother and father or if it's her grandparents, but you see two very sick people in the frames that she's essentially taking care of for everything in her childhood. And that she's very frustrated. She doesn't want them to die. She doesn't think that it's fair that God has allowed this to happen, etc. And she meets Abdo, and that's where she starts laughing for the first time as he's making these third-class wishes. I want a Mercedes, and he gets just the little Mercedes symbol that falls from the sky. Then he gets the Hot Wheels car, and then eventually he gets the car stuck on the the statue. So they fall in love, they get married, and he's still wishing for his car. And eventually, as I mentioned, he gets hit, in fact, by a BMW. Aziza eventually starts working, and she wants only one thing, and that's to buy a first-class wish. Where does she go to buy it? But... No other than Shokri's kiosk. She saves up all her money and gets there. She's then stopped by police, and this is where we have that first political dynamic of wishes and what's going on. She goes through a whole bureaucratic nightmare process. She's taken upstairs, downstairs, sent to this person, that person to fill out paperwork about the wish, even though she could have easily just taken them to Shokri's store and said, I just bought this from this man. They, of course, don't believe her, they throw her in prison, and they confiscate the wish. They can't use the wish because that downgrades it automatically. So it's not an idea of stealing the wish. But what they try to do is push her to give them the wish, to gift them the wish, so that it can then be used by them. These political dynamics and these social dynamics come into play very quickly. She's thrown in jail for quite some time. Eventually, she actually gets help from a nonprofit organization who sadly can't do much, but they slowly work at her case. She's stuck in prison for quite some time. But eventually they do get her out and she gets her wish back. And the, I think, most touching thing at the very end is that we see her still not knowing what to do with the wish once she gets it home. She opens it up and she wishes for forgiveness. So she actually is just wishing for Abdul to forgive how their last moment came together. So you think that maybe she would wish for money, she would wish for a house, maybe even if she wanted to memorialize Abdo, maybe a BMW, right? Something. But no, she wishes for forgiveness. And that's very important because, as I mentioned, we have all of these kind of background things going on, all these vain wishes, all of these, I want this, I want that. And you have a person who is extremely poor, who's been in jail, and all that she wants is peace in her soul. So there's this dynamic of wishes can actually be a very good and powerful thing for people, but it's often abused. All right, so then we get into Nora's story, and I'm breezing through these very quickly because there's so many little details in this. So each part is actually introduced by, once again, Shokri and Haga, or Shakiya. We often see the donkey as well going in the background as some comedic relief as they're very serious subjects treated by this graphic novel. Noor is a young university student. It seems like he has everything going well for him. He starts off at a cafe with his friends, they're talking, having a good time. Everything seems great, but then slowly we see that Noor is suffering from a very strong depression and mental illness. At the university, also something extremely important, he studies wish philosophy. And so We see him going to classes a few times and you get some ideas about the ethics behind wishmaking and how wishes work and things like that, which is interesting. But I think the thing that's even more interesting is that he doesn't necessarily know how to go about the wishmaking process, even though he does this study. Because just like many philosophies and many things related to ethics and morals, There's not really a clear answer. So we'll get into more of that in a bit. So despite the fact that we see him very involved in his friend group and having a good time, it's quickly revealed that he is extremely depressed. He returns home to a very big house. His car has something called anti-traffic. And you see him entering this kind of development that's called Utopia Heights. And in this place, you see all of these different things that have been wished for, essentially. There is a neighbor who owns dinosaurs. There's a pool in which no one can drown. It's quite impressive in terms of the things that are being wished for and held here. But when you see that contrast with Aziza's story that we just heard, it's very stark and it's very sad to see. So Nor, we would once again assume at this moment that he is just He's perfect. He's got a fancy house. He's got friends. He's at the university. And then, as soon as he enters into the home, we get this beautiful image of Dark slowly encapsulating Noor's image. And in the background, we see images from his childhood medals. He's winning things. He's with all of these friends. He's got trophies. And Noor continues to crouch down as the darkness weighs over him. Norris chapter is very filled with charts where we'll see a normal person line and then we'll see different emotions different feelings etc and his emotions are out of the normal person line he is falling on the bed for example and tired is at the highest intensity that you could see whereas the normal person is about midway And then we see all of his other emotions fear hope happiness sadness they're non-existent negligible and we see that he then sits in bed for weeks at a time we find out that he's actually not doing well in classes even though his friends said that he does well in classes and we see him trying to figure out ways to get out of this depression and of course his way after seeing shokri's store is to see if these wishes are actually verified So you can actually go to a website and see if that wish is really a first-class wish, if it's a a third-class wish trying to pretend to be a first-class wish, etc. And he finds out that, in fact, those wishes are first-class wishes with a max capacity of 10 dragons. What's going to explain the dragon power idea, but 10 being that max number. So we still see him suffering from his depression. His mom comes in a few times, seems to be slightly worried, but at the same time, she mostly lets Noor just do whatever he wants and does not stress too much about whether he is actively okay or not. So we see this kind of gap between his actual expressed emotions in the graphic novel compared to how people are reacting to him. His friends also have no idea. He tries to talk to his one male friend about it, and we see the friend blowing him off. Eventually he buys a wish, but of course with that wish, what happens other than the fact that he does not know what to wish for, how to wish for it, plus he suffers from guilt surrounding the wish. Naturally, he's thinking there are people way worse off than I am, why do I feel this way, why can't I be happy, etc., etc. As all of us know, mental health is not something you can control, nor is it something that's going to make you feel good even if you have technically everything that's around you. Once again, he's living with his two parents who are both alive. He's got siblings. He's got everything he could possibly want. He's studying at the university. There should be nothing holding him back from being happy, quote unquote. However, once again, depression makes everything be viewed completely differently, even if it's irrational. For that person, it's completely irrational. He's suffering from pressure. His brothers and sisters are all doing well with their families and their careers. His studies are not going well. He's not living up to the image that he had of himself before. And on top of that, he just can't get out of bed. He doesn't want to get out of bed. He has friends, but he doesn't care. It doesn't help him to have friends, as it doesn't for most people who suffered from depression. And once again, that guilt, trying to find a solution to go about it, and having that wish in his pocket but that's just causing more guilt and more problems than good it's a very common thing as people begin to find ways to to better themselves retail therapy for example i often find myself if i do that this might make me happy if i go and buy myself a new outfit or buy a new book and then no it doesn't because it's just an object that is temporary happiness right plus i then feel guilty i could have done something different with that money i could have saved that for a trip i could have Given that to somebody who needed it because I don't need what I just bought. right? So eventually we see him going to class and we hear more about philosophies of wishes. We have him interviewing his classmates who have wished before. And we find out that some people have strange powers that they got from wishing. We find that some people have, in fact, everything that they do have because of wishes. And then we also find out that there are some people who have healed their sick loved ones because of a wish there's all of these different ideas about wishes coming up once again from the vain to the very serious to the benevolent we also see him maybe thinking about donating the wish thinking that once again that idea of donating it might actually help him feel better and he gets very stuck in the end what does he do he decides to go to a therapist and he tries the therapist and the therapist kind of just blows him off first he actually tries to talk to his friend his male friend about it And he really just blows them off. Yeah, I get it. I feel sad sometimes too. But what do I have to be sad about? What do you have to be sad about? Nora tries to talk about it very, this isn't me. I'm just curious if you've ever felt this way. And of course the friend responds terribly as most people who do not suffer from depression do because they don't understand. He then talks to another friend who is a psych major and she tells him that he should go see a professional. The professional talks to him and essentially does nothing to help him whatsoever and gives him no reassurance about anything that's going on and something awful that a therapist should never do, she begins to critique his appearance. I'm going to quote this because it's just something I can't even make up. For example, maybe one of the reasons you're depressed is because you feel isolated. Perhaps we could start with your appearance to help you reach a more normal look. So this first therapist is just awful trying to make him change who he is when the problems at the end of the day are not because he is appearing one way or another. His appearance in the graphic novel is no different, in my opinion, than any other teenage boy. But for this therapist, he does not fit the Egyptian mold of normal for his age. Nor eventually falls into a depression again, of course, without feeling like he's going to get help until he eventually finds another therapist who does help a bit more. He draws charts, he gets help, and the therapist essentially explains to him that he's slowly going to feel better, but it's a very long process and he should take time before he gets into the wish. And then he actually finds a way to start feeling a little bit better at first. He hears about Aziza being in prison for the wish, and he actually goes out of his way to contact the nonprofit. And so we find out later on that it's actually he who contacted the nonprofit to go help Aziza and get her out of prison. So these stories interweave a lot. And once that happens, he starts to feel a lot better. He starts to get back on track. And of course, as depression always does, it does slowly come back down. He gets a, a bad grade on an assignment, for example, and then he stumbles back and falls again. He finally gets to the moment where he's still in therapy, he's still getting help, he's still helping himself, et cetera. He tries to give the wish back and eventually he finally knows what he wants to wish for. He wishes that he's always able to help himself when he needs to. And what this essentially allows him to do, it allows him to better rationalize things of what's going on. It allows him to always find a way to get himself out of any kind of depressive slump that he has. And we see him at the end in clothes that make him happy, he's out and about doing things. We maybe see him still suffering. He gets a bad grade on an exam, and yeah, like maybe initial shock about what happened. But then afterwards, he says, "You know what? It's fine. I'll be fine." So he always allows himself to get out of these depressive slumps. Of course, many of us wish that there were wishes to to help us get out of these slumps, but for. Nor he's able to do it and he makes in the end a very intelligent wish to allow himself to stop riding the roller coaster of depression that we see him going through from being stuck in bed for months to being super productive and getting all these things done and interacting with people and having friends to then being stuck back in bed. So he eventually finds a way to, to normalize his depression for himself through this wish. All right, so we then, once again, have some more political documents in between each chapter. And we see that the laws come up, the different restrictions, etc. In this last part, we get Shokri and Shalkia, or Haga's story. This is where we find out how Shokri actually gets the wishes. It's actually his father. In a time when explorers were coming to Egypt to discover the treasures and take them back to their own countries, steal the cultural heritage of Egypt, We see Shokri's father leading an Italian explorer into a chamber filled with bottles lined up along the walls. And we find out after the Italian explorer sends Shokri's father away, we find out that these are all bottles of wishes that he's going to take back with him to Italy. And instead of gifting Shokri's father a lot of wishes, he gives him three and says it won't matter anyway because Egyptians don't like wishes. Which, in this case, we do see Shakri's father, who absolutely hates wishes. He thinks that they're evil, they're against God, and we find that there's actually a whole undercurrent of philosophy surrounding religion and wishes. I know that this graphic novel maybe seems complicated, but it's so interesting and so connected. And it is 550 pages, so you do have a lot to, to wade through, and it does make a lot more sense as you're reading and getting all the details. So we finally get to this very ending chapter where we find out there's the wish philosophy. There's different rules and regulations going around all of it. And then we see an Islamic expression of anti-wish. So we do have this idea that Shakri's father, for example, is extremely against wishes. And of course, that also infiltrates into Shakri's ideals and philosophies. Shakri does not touch these wishes. He feels guilty for even selling them to people. Shakri's father gets the wishes from an Italian explorer. He should have gotten many more, but because of Egyptians' lack of enjoyment of wishes and because of the greediness of the explorer, we see Shakri's father getting three wishes, which he holds on to and absolutely does nothing. Their village is eventually being taken over by people who want to come in and exploit the natural resources. And rather than use a wish, Shakri's father says, That's fine, we'll take our resources, we'll take our wealth, and we'll go somewhere else. And that's when his father moves the whole family to Cairo. And in Cairo, he buys a kiosk, a couple other shops and things like that. And it is Shakri as the oldest son's responsibility to take care of his mother once his father passes, as well as his brothers and all of the businesses. With that, of course, come the wishes. And Shakri eventually does fall on some hard times. Things are expensive. Things aren't going well in Egypt. His brothers are all getting married and they're all needing money. He eventually gets married and has kids. And so we see him starting to have to sell some of the businesses and we see him starting to fit to worry about money a lot. And that's when we have this decision to actually end up selling the wishes, which he does not sell very fast. It takes a long time for him to sell the first wish and even longer time in between the first and the second wish. And then finally, we see him at the very end trying to sell this last wish, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he just wants rid of it. It grinds at his soul. At the same time that we have all of Shakri's backstory, we have Shalkia's story. So we find out that Shalkia is actually very sick. We didn't know this before, but because she comes to Shakri's kiosk every day, they eventually get talking about life, and we find out that Shalkia is actually suffering from some kind of cancer. And we find out because she comes one day with her grandchild, who eventually yells at her for buying cigarettes. And Shalkia's like, why why wouldn't she be able to smoke? And then the child expresses that she has cancer and shouldn't be smoking, etc. We then get a glimpse in the Shalkia's story. In fact, she's not a Haga. She's a Coptic Christian who moved from Upper Egypt to Cairo, slowly but surely. She was in charge of a very well-known fabric shop, and she built this entire empire for her whole family. And she's very much the rock of the family, for lack of a better word. She brings everybody around her. She tries to do good. She helps everyone out. And she's even trying to help out Shakri about what he should do with this wish. Shakri refuses to use it himself. He tries to donate it. He tries to to find other ways to get rid of it. He actually runs past Aziza in the nonprofit because Aziza starts volunteering at the nonprofit and he's there to try to give the wish and the nonprofit says, we're actually not in business anymore because we aren't getting funding and we we can't do anything anymore to help people. And so they're shutting their doors down, and so they refuse the wish. And because of new regulations, it's actually extremely difficult to give anybody, let alone a nonprofit, a wish. So, of course, he leaves upset and says hi to Aziza and sees that she's doing well, which is the first kind of moment where you see him maybe thinking, okay, maybe wishes aren't bad. She looks very good, and she used a wish. And then we start seeing some more little insights into old videos of imams talking about wishes and that they shouldn't be used. And we see Shakri finally seeing some inspiration and hope in these very old videos and some of these more extremists, like wishes are very against God's will and things like that. And we see this generational divide come in. Shakri's daughter is in the living room discussing things with him and she says, ah, like, this is old, uh, outdated information. What are you doing? And he says, no, this is exactly right. And she explains that there are a ton of other videos that explain other ways and other philosophies. And so we actually see him getting on YouTube to watch a couple of videos, and he gets super angry and frustrated about it. We then see him interacting with Noor again, who comes to the shop, and he sees once again that Nor has changed drastically since actually making his wish he remembers in the this little cartoonish graphic i don't deserve this wish and he's crying Nora's is crying in front of shakri's um, kiosk and then at this point when Shakri's is seeing him he's happy he's smiling he's thanking shakri for all of these things eventually he finds out that shakia wants to travel to the sea one last time she lived in Alexandria after. Her family's village suffered the same fate as Chakri's, and that people came in for the natural resources, so her family moved to Alexandria, where she then started her fabric empire. And so she wanted to go see the sea one more time before she died. Shakri takes the bottle and demands that she uses it to heal herself. Once again, he won't use the wish himself, but he demands that she do it. And eventually he goes to use the wish. He actually is going to open the wish himself, and he's going to wish that she live because she, he sees how important she is for so many people. She smacks the wish out of his hand, and she goes on a very long story. We actually find out that while her story is true, it's only one of the two lives that she's lived. She grew up in a village where there are a lot of neighboring villages, but they didn't necessarily get along. And people would actually use wishes to, if there was a dispute between one village and another, They would actually use wishes to attack the other village and it was oddly enough with dragons and this is where we get the idea of dragon power coming in one day somebody uses a second class wish to have a dragon attack her village and she gets stuck in the middle of it of course there's fire everywhere there's destruction everywhere and the first time she's living the story she grabs a paddle used to put bread in in the oven and take it out of the oven and she stabs the dragon in the eye because the dragon is going to essentially harm her sister she's very brave her sister does get burnt and in that reaction of anger and sadness is when she picks up the paddle and she goes and kills the dragon she's of course rewarded all of these things she gets a wish which she doesn't use her Coptic Christian upbringing doesn't necessarily want her to not use wishes, but at the same time she's seen all this destruction caused by them, and her family is encouraging her just to keep it for a bad time, you never know. She's then married to a gentleman, and this gentleman's brother marries her sister, because she's, as I mentioned, famous now for having killed this dragon. And of course with the marriage comes the wish, but because the wish is Xiaokia's the husband can't just take it and use it. It would kill the wish. So the husband essentially puts the wish in a safe. And they don't really get along. She hates her husband. And they eventually start tolerating each other. Maybe that's even too nice of a term. Eventually, she gets pregnant. She has two kids. And her husband, because he's awful at what he's doing, he crashes his family's business that was doing really well up until he took over. Her kids are famished they're getting parasites from playing in the nile her husband's doing nothing at all except trying to get her to use the wish and she's working so much trying to make ends meet eventually because her kids keep getting sick she keeps taking them to the doctor to have these parasites removed and eventually they end up suffering from some kind of liver or kidney failure that turns their eyes yellow and it's not pretty and they do eventually die at this point, her husband has left her. She's aged a lot because of all the hard work she's done. Her husband leaves her because he thinks that she's being selfish for not using the wish. And then she, of course, screams, I don't use this wish because you're going to just crash the business again anyway. Her husband comes back to her after her kids pass away and he tries to apologize. And she picks up a knife and kills him. She then takes the key. She goes to the safe, gets out the wish, and she uses it to go back in time. She goes back to the night when the dragon attacked the village. And because she remembers all that has just happened, she knows that when she goes back, she's going to live out the moment differently. And she ends up not killing the dragon. She lets the dragon live. It actually doesn't live that long because it's a second class wish, so it actually dies pretty quickly. Nobody's harmed in the village. The village is completely destroyed and her family has to move to Alexandria. So essentially she restarts her timeline and we see her now coming to Cairo where she has met Shakri in their timelines mix and she refuses to use the wish because she already had her wish granted and that she still lives with that regret of not having her kids with her there today. But she's also at the same time so happy with the timeline that she's created afterwards, knowing that when she does die, she'll see her children who passed away, if God wishes, in heaven. That's why she doesn't want the wish to be used on her. One, she doesn't feel like she deserves it because she was already selfish with wishes, and two, because she wants to go reunite with her dead children in the timeline that ended up being erased. So. We see a lot of different ideas and philosophies on these wishes, a lot of political aspects with these wishes. Strangely enough, with all of these dynamics going on, the political takes a big backseat, and we see just how humans interact with wishes in the world and how these dynamics affect everyday people in different regards. Since I've already given a bit too many spoilers about the text, I won't actually tell you how Shakri ends up using the wish, but do know that he does use it. I'll leave that as a little surprise for you if you decide to go pick up this text. This has already gone on for quite some time. I know the summary of this text is quite long, but I'll throw out quick mentions of some other things that really make this text spectacular. So already you should know, do not leave this text on read, pick up this text and read it. I actually read it on Kindle and I thought it would be a bad experience, but in fact, no, it was quite nice. The book is actually read as an Arabic book. So you essentially turn the pages from the left to the right. Even on the Kindle, that is the way you're supposed to read the text. Now, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to read things well on the Kindle, but they actually have a nice setup for graphic novels that you can double-click on a panel, and it brings the panel up larger for you. There is a little bit of a problem with some of the subscript, because the text uses a lot of Arabic, like the title, for example. There's expressions throughout a lot of it, and there's Arabic writing in much of the text as well in the images. And so we see little translations pop up at the bottom just to give you an idea about what's being said or what's being written on signs. And sometimes those won't open up in the Zoom on the computer. On the phone, you could Zoom with your fingers and it was much easier. You could read it as you wished, but the computer has a way for you to look at the panel where things are written. And sometimes those words wouldn't come up, but every one of the panels that had an image and the dialogue bubbles They were very easy to read when they zoomed up from the Kindle. The graphics in the text, there's actually a mix. Most of it is in black and white. And then the introduction parts and all the parts that are about the laws surrounding the wishes, because they're like little infographics that are distributed throughout the world, essentially. They're in color. And the color images are quite striking. It's very beautiful. You get a better idea about how the things are displayed. For example, you see the immensity of Cairo in all of its kind of grays and browns. And then you see all of these advertisements and then you see Shakri's kiosk, in fact, in all of these colors. And many of the advertisements are actually there to try to sell you wishes. When we are getting the kind of introduction, we actually get a little TV screen that has an ad about wishes and the harm that can be done with wishes. And so you get this kind of old TV screen kind of commercial, it really puts you into that mode of that I'm watching something and the color really adds to that. In the black and white parts, it doesn't bother me that it's in black and white. It does take away a little bit from the images, however, I will say that the black and white does a nice job of encapsulating much of the emotion of these characters as color is typically a little bit happier in my view anyway. And all of these characters have fairly tragic stories and seeing Aziza going through her mourning process would not be the same if it were in color. Seeing Noor go through his depressions, once again, we have that black encroaching on his body as he's walking back to his bedroom. That would not have been the same if that were in color. So I really think that the black and white is actually very effective for the emotions of these stories and the moments that are in color just make the entire graphic novel very beautiful in those moments. Beyond these moments of color and things like that, of course, it is a graphic novel, so it does read rather quickly, despite it being 550 pages, as I mentioned. But These brochures about the politics and the history of wishes slow you down a lot because there's a lot more text on the page. And it's actually quite interesting because we see, as I mentioned, we talked about the lessips. There's all of these like social critiques and colonial critiques added into what's going on. And you see a big some people will call it first world, third world dynamics. Some people might call it East and West. Whatever term you'd like to employ there, I try to avoid the East and West. But you see this big dynamic between so-called developed countries from Europe and the United States having access to wishes in different ways and having laws around wishes in different ways that protect essentially richer folks and allow more access in freer countries. And then we see the kind of reverse in Egypt. Oh, there's too many third-class wishes here. We can't have people wishing for things all the time. Essentially, holding people back, making wishes inaccessible in Egypt, holding people back from perhaps advancing, perhaps healing themselves from certain things. But we also have really important explanations. Why can't somebody just wish for world peace? The power of the wishes cannot allow world peace to exist forever. They explain that there is only a duration of world peace that can happen. And in fact, only the United Nations can then wish for things to help with conflict in the economy and things like that. So once again, we see this kind of gatekeeping idea. Only this specific political body can make wishes for that purpose. And they decide whether it's allowable or not, et cetera, et cetera. So we get some really interesting dynamics at play that are much more critical than we would think, especially in a graphic novel. We see some aspects of gender coming into play, too. As I mentioned, we have Aziza, who's relegated to the home, for lack of a better word, until we eventually see her having to come out and having to work. And then we see her living a completely different life. And then we have strong women like Aziza and Shokia who show that there's a completely different mode of life for women who are strong and powerful. However, at the same time, we often see that they're relegated to the side. And it also shows that once again, privileges, might give you things that you need but it doesn't necessarily fulfill you we also know that all places around the world have issues setting this in egypt and exposing these issues is very revealing of the international dynamics that affect countries and then we have Nora's story that allows everyone to realize that Nora, once again also from egypt but you could place Nora anywhere else it's actually often said many times in the text his friends the doctor even They state that depression is a quote-unquote Western problem. It's a problem of the United States. It's a problem of Europe where people are just, they need to have a reason to be sad. And obviously, Noor reveals that, first off, people everywhere can suffer from mental health issues. And second off, that it has nothing to do with being privileged whatsoever. As mentioned, he has everything. So this text really has a way to make everyone feel something related to wishes, related to the dynamics of the world, related to their own beings and identities. 100% pick this book up. It's definitely worth a read. Even if you get the Kindle version, it is very nice to read through. It's actually better on the phone, as I mentioned, or if you choose to buy the actual graphic novel, highly recommend. It's gorgeous art, gorgeous story, and Dina Mohammed did an amazing job with Shubik Lubik. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Leave it on red where I tell you which books are worth picking up, or which ones are worth ignoring, like those pesky messages that keep popping up on your phone. Just to give a little recap, two weeks ago, I talked about Kate Tempest's Brand New Ancients, which I also think that you should not leave unread. This week, we've talked about Shubek Lubek by Dina Mohammed. another text you should not leave on read. Pick this one up as well and read it. I'm not sure what's going to happen next week as I often read these texts just before doing the recording. But if anybody has any recommendations on texts that I should read, please put them in the comments. It would also be great if you could comment your thoughts or ideas about what would make this podcast better. Or if you think it's going well so far, feel free to like, share, or leave a comment of support. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear if you've read this text what you're thinking about it as well. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.